Well, dear friends, I turn now your very prayerful attention, with the Lord's help, to Matthew chapter 9. And we want to consider some verses here where the disciples of John came, and indeed there's a mixture, not only of the disciples of John, but some others who were bystanding, people that had seen this change in the life of Levi, who was formerly a tax collector, and Matthew, who would be the one that would pen, put together these words of the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord has called this man Matthew to himself, formerly Levi. And uh, before this, a great multitude marveled and glorified God at the power. Think of the context of this passage here. Now we're going to think on verse 16 and 17, but even before that, want to look at verse 14 initially. And we read there, didn't we, from Song of Solomon. And the theme really tonight is Christ, the bridegroom. And I must tell you that he has a bride. And he will call his bride. Who is his bride? They are sinners. They are sick sinners. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there are many who in his day thought that they were well, namely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. They thought they were all well. They thought that they were spiritually healthy. And they could not understand the love and the passion which the Lord Jesus Christ's disciples had for him. And that is because they did not understand the very one who was, and didn't even know the very one who was before them the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and he speaks of himself here as the bridegroom. And before all this takes place, we think of this, the many miracles that surround this passage. Indeed, we read from chapter 8 how, indeed, he called evil spirits from that one called Legion, who was living amongst the Gadarenes. We read that also, don't we, in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 4, as they crossed the Sea of Galilee, we're told that there were actually two that came out to meet him, but he saved one of them. And that's a picture, isn't it? We often forget this. There was not just one possessed with devils, but there were two. But there was one that we know particularly that came to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know not of the other. There were two that were greatly possessed, living amongst the tombs. And the Lord Jesus here heals certainly these, the devils, besought him. And elsewhere we read that there were actually two that were possessed with a devil. Notice in verse 28 of chapter 8. And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, in Mark's gospel we've got Gadarenes, it's the same just a different way we've got to understand one is for the Jew, one is for the Gentile. One of the Gospels given there. There met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce. In Mark's Gospel we read of Legion. So there are two men here, but one particularly saved in Mark's Gospel. And he went and told what good things the Lord had done. The Lord completely changed that man's life around. He came out running, screaming, 
crying, What would thou have to do with us? Jesus, thou son of David. They recognized him when he came to the world. The evil spirits recognized him. And they know that their end is near. Let me say this, friends. The devil is real. And he knows his end is nigh. We are told this in the book of the Revelation, chapter 12. And therefore he is very wroth. And there is a, a great activity of evil in this world right now. And even the devil will even seek to be present right now and to snatch the seed of God's word from you so that Christ is not made precious to you. Let me say, friends, there's nothing more precious in all the world than Jesus Christ. He is the word. We could say there's nothing more precious than the word of God, but there is nothing more precious than the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And Peter says, to them who believe, he is precious. And if you were to ask a husband or a wife who is the most earthly prized person you prize here in this world, it would be, have to be their husband or their wife. And so it is for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And he is precious because... As we will see tonight, he is just not Lord, but he is the good shepherd. You lay down his life for the sheep and he is also king. In the Song of Solomon, the great king there is pictured as a shepherd and a king. It would be completely unheard of in the Old Testament that a, a king would also be a shepherd to beneath him. But I remind you, that's what David was first. And I remind you, that's what Christ is really first for his people. He came to be the good shepherd. And what is he now? My friends, he's the king in heaven. And he's coming again. He came to be the shepherd who would seek lost sheep like Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. He's sick. In his soul, Matthew, he lived a sinful life. What was the life of a tax collector? Well, the Jews very much despised this. It wasn't like tax collectors today. Like you would work for the IRS or some inland revenue service. Not like that. It was a very dishonest job. Tax collector comes up to you and says, you owe me some money. You pull out your wallet and you start giving. He says, more. More, please, more. Come on, keep it going. Keep it going. Let's have some more. And that's how it would be. Dishonesty. Filthy lucre. That was the life Matthew lived. Or we should say, Levi. They didn't care what other people thought. Dishonest. And he left that all behind. Because the Lord had opened his eyes. Just as the Lord opened Peter's eyes. Remember Peter thought he knew all about fishing. He thought he knew all about the fishes. Where to catch them. But he had been out all night. Until the Lord said. Let's go out. Let's cast the nets. Luke chapter 5. Master, don't you know? 
We're experienced men. We've been out all night. We've caught nothing. Nevertheless, as thou sayest, they cast the nets and they begin to tug at the nets. Peter is completely overwhelmed when the catch is so great that the ship begins to sink because of all the great fishes that they have hauled in. Peter understood for the first time that he is dealing with the Lord of glory who made the ocean and the fishes. He who is very God. And Christ was made very precious to Peter. That's why Peter says, to them that believe he is precious. The very Lord of heaven, the King of heaven, became the shepherd who has come to seek and to save the lost. My friend, we come into this world lost and we think we know it every, We think we know it all. We think we know what makes for a life. But we don't really know what makes for a life. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3, when he writes to believers, he says, When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, shall we then appear with him in glory? You see, Christ becomes the life of his people. There, in Matthew 8, the Lord called a man out of the tomb. And that's true in salvation. I want to say every one of us by nature are living in the tomb of death and in the dark nature of night, of sin. That's true. We are just like Legion, living amongst the dark things of the world, the things of the world. Look at him. He's living amongst the dead bones there. Some people can even be so lost and be attracted to the occult. The Bible says, have nothing to do with the hidden works of darkness, but rather reprove them. But a man can go so deep and dark into sin that he ends up cutting himself and tormenting himself day and night until the Lord comes. It's a picture, too, of the soul, let me say. But then he comes, and uh, what does he do? He, he calls a man of a different calling of life, Levi, as I said, a tax collector. Come, follow me. That's the power of the Lord Jesus. And when he calls, my friends, it is, a, it, it is an effectual call. It's the power of God. Something so authoritative about the teaching of Christ. I was reading of a man the other day who said, you know, he, he was struck by one thing when he read the Bible. The authority of Christ is unmistakable. The power of Christ. And the effect that he had upon people. Why? Because he is God. And he commanded Matthew. And when he, when he calls sinners to himself, First of all, let me say, there's a call of repentance. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus, when he began to preach in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, 14 and 15, what did he say? He began to preach, repent, and believe the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But there was one before the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist. And here we read in this chapter of this debate of this argument why John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, why they fast much. Now there was a clear difference between John's disciples and the Pharisees. We must say first of all that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day never truly repented. Because we know when we if you just turn there to Matthew chapter 3. 
we read of John. And John, by the way, was the one that was announced who would be preaching in the wilderness in Isaiah 40, make straight paths, the way of the Lord. Matthew 3, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preaching repentance, wasn't he? Calling sinners to repent their sins. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his garment of camel hair and his a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey, and went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But notice this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, it says many, not all, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he said, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, or in keeping with repentance. In other words, they had not repented. And as I said, when you come to chapter 9 here, it's very clear that there is a difference between John's disciples and they of the Pharisees and Sadducees. John upbraided them. Because many of them thought they would be heard for their many prayers. But what were their prayers like? I thank God I'm not like him. I thank God I'm better. Lord, look at me. I'm a rather good person compared to the rest. That was their thinking. The Lord Jesus gave a parable on this. And this was John, the very John in whom, which Isaiah spoke, would be coming, preaching there in Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, and he has come, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be exalted. The valley there really has to do with the soul, the one that is poor in spirit. You think of a valley, it, it is low. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain made low. The mountain, the, the mountainous pride of these men would be made low. He's not speaking about the geography of the place, but he's speaking about the spiritual state of men's souls. Now, there is no really comparison, but we must say that it's quite clear at this point that John's disciples had, although they were convicted of sin, because remember John was preaching repentance, they were convicted of sin. And yet their eyes had not yet been opened to Christ. And this may well be the point of somebody's heart here. I remember when the Lord began to work in me, I, I felt very conscious and aware my sin like I'd never been before. And I knew these people were very different to me. But I never really saw the loveliness of Christ. I never really appreciated him. 
And I never really understood it. But I, I knew God had, was doing something. I couldn't explain it. I could see, as it were, but dimly. The Lord had awakened me, quickened me, as it were, and bringing me to see Christ for all of his worth. And it, it does begin with conviction of sin. It does begin then with faith, slowly seeing. Now these disciples of John do not reject Christ because John spoke of Christ. Didn't John speak of Christ? Well, if you turn to John chapter 1, and verse 19, prior to this, John chapter 1, verse 19, sorry. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is John. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? If you're not the Christ? Because remember, John was commanding and gathering great crowds. Art thou Elias? He said, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said unto him, who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. There he's quoting from Isaiah 40. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah, and they which were sent of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptize thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And by the way, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, speaks of Elias, which was to come. That this is Elias in the spirit, as the Lord Jesus will go on to say. Now notice what John says, John the Baptist. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. Now notice this quite striking. He it is who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethaba beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now notice, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now this is very striking. And I knew him not. And I knew him not. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. Now John did know him as a relative but yet not had actually been revealed. But at that time of his baptism, it was revealed. The Spirit of God revealed it to him. And what was John doing? He was preaching repentance, and he realized suddenly, this is the one. John has been doing the right work, calling sinners to repentance. And the question is asked here. This is a little later on. Many come. And they ask, look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eatest, your, why eatest your master with publicans and sinners? They're speaking about the disciples of Christ. 
When Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what it meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And he gives the answer. And this is where I wish us to spend our time. And he will speak of the real need of a man's heart. And that is to be made a new vessel. He will speak about wine and wineskins. He will speak of the great need. The great need, friend, is that new vessel when new wine and joy, joy in the Lord, can only, as it were, be digested by somebody who truly not only has repented, but has been made anew. And at this point, the disciples of John just did not see. They knew they were greatly convicted sinners. They had repented. But they're asking, why is it we fast and the disciples of the Lord Jesus don't? When he gives the answer, Verse 15, and Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Christ, my friends, is the bridegroom. The church is his people. And they gather together for the great day looking for his second coming. He is going to have to go to the cross and here he speaks, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Speaking about his departure, his departure that will be soon. It will be necessary that he, he be taken up, as we read, do we not, to his throne, the man-child that came into this world, the Son of God, that he will be taken up to his throne. We want to think here about what the Lord has done, first of all, in this man's heart. Matthew is one, we could say, who belongs to this great marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's rejoicing because he is with Christ, the bridegroom. You see that here? Matthew has left all. He's left his life of dishonesty. He's left it all to follow Christ. He's been convicted of his sin. Now his eyes have been opened. Do you remember when in John chapter 6, many of the disciples, and the word disciple simply can also mean a follower, followed him no more. And Peter, the Lord, turned to him and said, Will you? And he turned not only to Peter, but to the disciples, will you depart also? And they said, where shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They valued Christ for all that he is. That he is the one who gives eternal life. The one who is the good shepherd. Who said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in this kingdom. Matthew here has begun to see the preciousness of Christ. Look at the language 
And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now here's the thing. What is it that makes the Christian tick? What is it that makes the Christian, as it were, his heart beat for God? Christ. Because Christ is made precious to that soul. Christ is the bridegroom. We, we know from Jeremiah, the Lord said, Thy maker is thy husband. Why does God use such language? Well, we know that marriage is between two. Isn't it? The two shall be one flesh. And what God has joined, let no man break asunder. And you see, by sin, by nature, we are separated from a holy God. But God promised to unite his people to himself by the ties of blood, that of his son, that he would come into this world, that he would be born of a woman, now the disciples are beginning to see just how precious Christ is. They've seen his miracles. They've seen his power. They don't fully understand everything. Let's understand. They seem dimly, aren't they? But they're beginning to, to see there is something so wonderful about Christ. Something so enamoring about his teaching and about his life. Everything about him was so constraining as it were. And keeping them fixed. And what we will see here, we see the remarkable power. It's amazing how Matthew follows all. The Pharisees are looking through the window, seeing, oh, look, Lord, Lord Jesus, he's sitting down with sinners. Yes, but these sinners have changed. And you've got men later on like Zacchaeus, who completely left everything and all behind for the sake of Christ. He has come to call those who need a physician. And he is the great physician of souls. So here we see Matthew changed. And this is really what happens when a man is regenerated. What I want us to see, look, he uses this analogy. I know I preached on this a little while ago, but I think it's important to come back to it. What really happens in salvation. Not only is there a repentance, but then there's a new heart. And we know that John spoke of Christ, didn't he? Repent, and then he spoke of a greater one to come, who would baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with power, and would completely transform the lives of people. And the fact that a man begins to repent and believe is a sign of life, life to begin with. But then you see, we, we have another problem. I want to take you just very briefly to that passage where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about building and uh, just try to tie this in. Remember how the Lord Jesus, how when he, he said, a man must forsake all and deny himself and follow me. And then he, he goes on to speak about how 
A heart is changed for the glory of God and how there is life in that new person. And that person, indeed, when they follow Christ, they're not as fools who don't count the cost. It's important, isn't it? When we begin a new life, there's a counting. And here's the question we ask. Will a man, when he is saved, how, and this was my question, will I be able to finish this work? But really, I wasn't asking the right question. It's not about me, but it's about a work that God does. Let me just take you there to Luke 14. Luke 14. I want to seek to try to tie this in with our text this evening. Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 25. And there were, went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother and wife, and children and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And we'd pause there just for a moment. He stops and turns around. It's, if you study the passage, there's a great crowd following him. And he has a very profound announcement to make to this entire crowd. The crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he, he makes an emphatic statement. If a man will not deny himself, take up his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And then he says this, look at verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it? All that behold it begin to mock him. Now, the first thing we would say is this. A man would be a fool. And a man would be a fool to not count the cost and realize what it is to follow Christ. And we might look to ourselves and say, well, I'm, I'm not sufficient. I know my own heart. I know my own weakness. But here it is. God is the sufficiency of his people. God is the strength of his people. A, a man has to look inside his heart and says, look, there's nothing in me, Lord. I, I can't do it. I'm weak. I'm foolish. I'm prone to stumble. Peter said even, Lord, I'll never deny you. But Peter had to learn. Peter, you can't do it. You see, if a man thinks he has anything in him, he never even begin, let alone finish. He'll be undone the moment he starts, because it's a false start. You don't start in yourself. And because, you see, when one, by the grace of God, comes to faith in Christ, let me say, 
He is, first of all, a penitent sinner. John was preaching right repentance. But then you see God, he calls those who are sick. Now, if you're calling sick people on a long journey, you say to them, fix yourself up. You say, well, you're going to need a lot of tablets. You're going to need a lot of strength. No. And that's why we come to our text. He says here, it's about mercy. And you know, here's the thing. We sometimes sing, let not a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to see your need of him. And the sinner who really sees their need for Christ will find in him all sufficiency. He is the life of the believer. He is the strength of the believer. And look what he says, and this is the problem. Those who truly of the Pharisee has not yet repented. They hadn't repented. They thought they were good. And he says, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, they that are whole need not a physician, so let's deal with them. But they that are sick, in other words, them that have repented, see their sinners. Yeah. And he says to them, go and learn what it meaneth. I will have mercy. My friends, that's what it's all about. A man will never be helped if he thinks he's strong, if he thinks he can do it. And that's where Christ comes in. Because he is not only the physician of soul, but he is the one who makes the soul new. And this is what it goes on to speak about. When a man is saved and brought to an awareness of Christ, he sees in Christ sufficiency all. In Christ. Then came to him the disciples. Why do we and the disciples uh, and the Pharisees Disciples of John and the Pharisees fast oft, but the disciples fast not. Well, first of all, because the bridegroom is here. And you've heard it said before, the joy of the Lord is the strength of the believer, isn't it? To know forgiveness of sins. Matthew, follow me. Matthew, you're a forgiven man. Matthew, I'm calling you to a new life. Yes, Lord, but how am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? Well, look on. He speaks about the bridegroom, who is himself, and those in the bride chamber. These are them who belong to his marriage supper. And then he applies it. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. So you can imagine you've got an old garment. You don't put an old, a new piece of cloth on it because it's going to rip it. The new life. Well, it, it won't be sustained by an old person. The demands are too great. That's the first lesson. 
The person can't walk with Christ because it's an old heart. And you put new demands on it, it's going to be too much. That's just a simple analogy. Neither do men, verse 17, put new wine into old bottles. Now think of it. Here, this is again spiritual analogy. Wine very often is associated with joy. But think of the old wine. The old wine of the old life. When you look on, this person even says, the old wine tastes better. Doesn't drink it straight away. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the old bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish, but they put new wine into old bottles and both are preserved. And then if you read Luke's gospel, Luke goes on to speak that no man having tasted uh, old wine, he says, well, the old wine's better. It's a picture, too, of the old life. Until, of course, you taste Christ, who is the new life. And it's far better than the old life. Christ is that new wine. It speaks of joy and happiness and contentment of the Lord. That new life is Christ. And notice here, neither do men put new wine into old bottles, or else the bottles break. You see, the demands of the Christian life, my friend, first of all, demand that you have a new heart to sustain Christ. And you see, when you have a new heart, you realize the preciousness of Christ. And by the way, the Christ does not break the new bottle. That's interesting, you see, he doesn't break the new bottle. But it's, it's suitable. It's a suitable life. It's a suitable heart for that new wine. You're not going to desire the things of Christ if you have old wine. The old wine of this life, my friend. And what is the old wine? Look at the old bottle. And the new bottle doesn't perish. Not this one. Not the bottle that he gives. What did he say of his meat? What did he say of his things? There in Song of Solomon, if you just turn with me there to chapter 2. Here is the language of the believer. And we read of the beloved. He brought me Chapter 2, verse 4, to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love. Till he please. She has been brought into the banqueting house of his love. And she says in verse 4, his banner over me was love. It is the love of Christ to bring new life into a person. And to, as it were, to take them from the, the dregs, as it were, of the sins of this world. You think 
of old wine, how strong it can be as well. We know that new wine would be strong, but that which is of Christ will not break the person. He is that new life infused into the believer. And what does he bring? He brings joy. He brings forgiveness of sins, newness of life. Later on in Song of Solomon, I know we were discussing this at the table earlier on today. In chapter 5, and by the way, the daughters of Jerusalem are not, don't know the Lord. And she has been telling them how wonderful the Lord is and how tremendous he is. And she seems to have lost him for a while. And they say in verse 9 of chapter 5, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou, O fairest among women? They, they admire her. What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou should so charge us? And then she goes on to say, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. The Lord Jesus, coming back here to Matthew chapter 9, is that bridegroom. He is the eternal God who says to his people, I am thy husbandman, I am thy creator, I am thy God. And it's interesting, in Song of Solomon, the Lord, we know Psalm 23 as well, the Lord is my shepherd. But he is the shepherd king, isn't he? He's the king of heaven who came into this world, my friend, this sin-stricken world to save poor sick Matthew, sick in his soul, addicted to money, addicted to stuff, addicted to the things of this world. And he has given him a new heart. And he's given him a new joy. So that he no longer enjoys the wine of this world. He no longer enjoys the dainties of this world, but Christ is precious. And he doesn't need to fast because he has the Lord with him. The very presence of the Lord. And let me say this. Of course, the Christian is commanded to fast, but he doesn't advertise it. He fasts when he prays, but the whole purpose of the fasting, fasting is that he, he prays more concentratedly and that he gives himself to God more concentratedly. But here the idea is they have the Lord himself, the very bridegroom in their presence, and they are joying. Because they know newness of life. John the Baptist's disciples, all they knew was repentance. All they knew at this point was conviction of sin. And their eyes had not yet been opened to the King of glory. Who would lay down his life for poor wretched sinners as Matthew. For Zacchaeus and others. For the dregs of society. That's what he would do. To give them a new vessel so that he might be that joy. And my friend, you see, remember taking you back there to what the Lord Jesus said. A man is a fool if he doesn't count the cost. And if he thinks he can do it himself. And that's the very point, you see. What is God doing? He's bringing a man to the end of himself to say, Lord, 
I can't even begin on this journey. I can't even begin to deny myself unless, Lord, thou be my help, thou be my strength, thou be my life. Jesus Christ is the sufficiency of every believer. The Lord even said, without me you can do nothing. But he said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. How wonderful is that? There is no strength in me, friends. There's no strength in me to do anything for God. I have to look to him to repent. I have to look to him to pray. I have to look to him to speak to every one of you. Otherwise, I get it all wrong. The Lord is the sufficiency of his people. Why? Because he finds us sick with sin. He finds us poor and wretched. What does he say to the church at Laodicea? Come and buy without money, without price. It's all gratuitous. It's all gratis. It is all at his disposal, my friend. Don't dream of fitness. All the fitness he requires is to see your need of him. That's what the disciples would have to learn. That's what we all have to learn through the Christian life. So that God gets the glory. Not only in saving us, but in keeping us to the very end. You see, the Christian life is a, is a humbling life, my friend. Isn't it? It brings a man. See, Lord, I need to continue. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? Here's the wise man that builds his house on the rock. And who is he? He that hears my word and keeps it or does it. But how we do it? Through him, who is the joy and the strength of the believer. So my friend, if there is conviction of sin, and if you are looking at some strength within yourself, that's a hopeless case. I implore you to look to Christ as the strength of the sick one. And it's love. That constrains us. I sat down under the shadow of his tree. We read there in Song of Solomon. That tree, that apple tree, is Christ. And he provides shade for weary sinners in this world to rest in him. Because we can't save ourselves. We can't even keep ourselves from sin. But it's the Christian that looks to God. The believer that looks to God. Keep me, Lord. The psalmist is saying throughout the Psalms, Keep me, Lord. Keep me near thee. Write thy word upon my heart. Save me, Lord. And I suppose the, the Christian is being saved, being saved from self 
from sin, from the world, from everything. That's the life. You see, Christ is the life of the believer. And this is the vessel that he gives, a new vessel. You know, some people, they have this idea of being a Christian. Look at the garment here. It's an old garment. They just put patches on on an old life, and that'll do no good. Christ has to become the life, and you have to deny yourself. Begin to receive the truth as a child. That's why he says, as you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's it, you see. He comes to give a new life, a new heart, a new joy. The joy is he is God. He's not just some prophet. He's not like the men of this world, the so-called prophets of other religions. But he is very God, my friends. Come in the flesh, the creator of the world. He died for his people. He never forsake any of these disciples. Neither will he cast any that come unto him in sincerity. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that cometh unto me I shall in no wise cast out. But you come, my friend, as a sick, as a weak, as a helpless sinner. And you cast yourself as a worm into his kind arms. And he saves such. The very fact that you're doing that has to be of God. Because no man by nature would do that. It is all of God. Seek him. So gracious. And he will be precious to you. We read in the Song of Solomon how she leans on her beloved through the wilderness of this world. It's a picture of the believer. And I entreat you to seek him now while he may be be found. Don't think that somehow the Christian is a better person. He's as weak, or she is as weak as one can be. But they are strong in Christ. Amen. Amen.